Good morning. It's been over 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, and it vividly is still in my mind that summer night where the party was over and we were in the car coming out of the driveway. And we're thinking about where can we go eat tonight? And after all these events, and we're young, mind you, we're teenagers at the time, or I was a teenager at the time, and all of a sudden everything stopped. As the white van pulled up, some men jumped out of the car, got, stopped us from pulling out, and came to both doors. I was sitting in the driver's seat. And I still remember how shiny that gun was when it was held up this high next to me. And again, speaking, what in the world is going on here? These men weren't happy. And where I was talking to them, say, what is going on? And what we thought was just going to be a fun night that's going to get even more fun as we were left to go eat turned on a dime. And suddenly as our friends were pulling out, speeding off, who we were parked off the street, they, they fired at the, the car and then they scattered. And that just showed me how things could turn in a moment. How things could turn in a moment. Events like this throughout my life have really drawn my mind and heart to think about eternity, even as a young person, as a child, even a teenager in that moment. I was able to attend one of my friend's funeral who, who passed away, who died at mid-50s yesterday. We should think about these things. What will happen when I die? What will happen when I die? Will I go to heaven or will I go to hell? So the sermon title is very indicative of what this sermon is about. Do you have eternal life? Do I have eternal life? And really, this type of message is perhaps the most important type of message because in the end, this is all that matters. And today, God diagnoses our heart condition to let us know our spiritual condition. Are we going to heaven to be with God or to be apart from him upon death. This is very important that we think through this. And if you're a guest, we're so happy that you're here. It's providence that brought you here. And this is the type of message that you need to hear. This is the type of message that could turn your eternity from one place to another. In other words, how you respond to what is preached today you'll be able to answer biblically where you're headed towards after death. And if you're an Evergreen Baptist Church member or longtime attendee, the Bible says test yourself to see if you're in your faith. So this is not just for our guests. This is for us. This is for me. I, I sat under this, this portion of Scripture all week long. So we're going to answer one question. Do you, do I have eternal life? That's the question that we're looking to answer. And we're going to turn to God's Word the Bible to get answers here. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, Mark 10, 13 to 27 is what's going to be preached. So as you're turning there, just a little bit of context. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is making his final march towards the cross. He's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross to save sinners. And he's training the 12 disciples. He had a team of 12 that he was training him to understand what do saved people look like? How do they dis discern if someone is headed towards heaven or apart from God in hell? 
And providentially, there's two separate encounters. An encounter with a bunch of children and an encounter with a rich young ruler, which teach the lesson to the 12 and to us 2,000 years later. So, if you, so let's rise as we read Mark 10, 13 to 27. I'll be reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible. Mark 10, verse 13. God's word says this. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving and he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this precious word. Thank you for this word that tells us what saving faith looks like. I pray your spirit will give us ears to hear, Lord. You will call the lost forward to eternal life and you would build up and strengthen your children this morning. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Do you have eternal life? And I'm going to give you three road markers ahead of time just so we could journey together smoothly and so you could follow along. But the three road markers that I'm going to give you is dependent faith, number one. Number two, devotion to God. Number three, divine grace. Dependent faith, devotion to God, and divine grace. Do you have eternal life? Salvation requires, point number one, dependent faith. Children were coming to Jesus Christ. Parents were saying, go see him, he is the one. The, the 12 disciples were saying, rebuking them, stop. The teacher's busy, he doesn't have time for you. You need to wait. Everyone else is waiting to see Jesus. You need to stop. Parents, you need to stop having the children come to Jesus. 
And this may seem like an odd thing for us today, right? Why were the disciples, are they that heartless? Are they that, that clueless that they didn't get this? Why does Jesus have to even address this with them? Well, the first century cultural context was such that children were the lowest on the social ladder. In the pagan or non-Jewish world, children sadly were sacrificed. Sadly, children were sold off as slaves at times. In the Jewish context, children were seen as a nuisance until adulthood when they could contribute. So the disciples were basically living out what was thought out in that time. But verse 14 says this, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was angry. He was aroused to anger. What makes Jesus angry? Here it is. Keeping people from God. And this word indignant means it's a sense of righteous anger where he's aroused to anger against some wrongdoing. Stop. Don't keep them from coming to me. As we sung earlier, the creator of the galaxies above is reaching down to his children and saying, this is, these are the ones who I came for. Verse 14 says that permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God, this is the, in other words, those who are saved. This is the sphere of salvation. If you're in the kingdom of God, you're saved. You have eternal life, praise God. If you're out of the kingdom of God, there is no eternal life. There is no eternal life. And the children... The real children coming, but in some ways, they serve as an object lesson for the disciples. See, God sees his people as his children. Throughout the Old Testament, even now, God sees you and me, no matter how young or old we are, those of us who are in Christ, as his children. And I believe that there's a certain aspect that the Lord is emphasizing with the children. Turn with me to verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to receive, enter the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God like a child. What does that mean? Children are young and small, unknowledgeable and innocent. But in context, as we're going to find out as we relate to the rich young ruler coming up, I believe Jesus is emphasizing the humble dependence of a child, needy, without any merit to offer. I mean, think about it. Children, a child knows that he does not have enough money to buy his way into heaven. A child knows that he does not know enough to reason his way into heaven. A child knows that he is not strong enough to climb up to heaven. There's nothing the child can do to enter the kingdom of heaven but to receive it as a gift. So as dependent people, we simply receive the offer of salvation. It's the free gift of eternal life that the Bible talks about. By simply having a simple faith in a simple message as dependent children would do. The gospel message is what we're talking about, the good news. So if you're a guest, Christianity is all about good news. It's not about rules and laws. It's about good news. And in a message that even a child could understand, 
even where a child could understand. And to illustrate this, I remember talking to my dad who died a year ago, and, and I've shared this before. In his village, on top of his hills, a pro, two prominent buildings, a Buddhist temple and a Shinto shrine. Is, and some people come and take a pilgrimage up this mountaintop where, where they lived. And talking to my dad years later about Christianity, he would say, is that it? That Jesus Christ came into the world to die to save sinners? Is that really the message? It, it, there's got to be more to it than that. That's it, Dad. I mean, I said, what did you think it was like? Well, there's these two temples, and even to this day, I mean, in the close to his 80s, he's, he's, he said, I didn't even know what that was all about. Christianity is an understandable, lucid religion where, where Christ came into the world to save sinners. And this message should be understandable for even children to be able to grasp, at least intellectually. Now, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. There are really only two kingdoms in, in existence, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of Satan. That's it, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And this is where two kingdoms are at odds. And we know who wins this. We know who won this battle at the cross. The kingdom of God reigns forever, and Jesus Christ is that king who reigns forever. Everybody outside the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of the world, will be judged. That's really the issue. So what is Christianity about? Well, it starts with good news. The good news says that Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom of God, came into the world to die to save sinners. The bad news is that all of us were born into the kingdom of the world, and all of us have sinned against this king. We've rebelled against him. We've thought some evil things. We've done some evil things. We've said unkind words. And God knows about all this, and really we've rebelled against the king of the, of, of the kingdom of God. That's bad news, and the king, this kingdom, this king is going to judge everyone in this kingdom. But the good news is that Jesus paid it all. On the cross, he took on the punishment to save sinners. Do you want to be part of the kingdom of God now? Do you want to be saved and be a part of the kingdom of God? Because God is a righteous judge and he will judge every single sinner. Someone is going to pay the price for sin, either the son, the king on the cross, or us. Someone's going to pay the price. So how do you respond to this good news? This is, yes, I'm talking to you. A simple message that God has given terms of peace to mankind to say, hey, do you want to enter into the kingdom? Simply receive this free offer of salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that the one who died for you, and as your Lord. Come into the kingdom and follow him. That's what, he, that's what this message is about. And we need to understand this and accept this as dependent, like dependent children. Do you have eternal life? I hope this is an encouragement for many of us. Like, yes, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I, I think that's important for us to constantly reaffirm to ourselves. 
as believers, we want to be reminded through the preaching, through the reading, in your prayer life, you're thanking God, constantly reaffirming what Christ has done for you and me, Christians. But also just to say it out loud or say it in your head, constantly reaffirm that Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. But if you're not in the kingdom right now, keep listening, okay? There's more. There's more. So salvation requires dependent faith. Let's go to point number two. Salvation requires devotion to God. Devotion to God. Verse 17 says this. Turn with me there. Mark 10, verse 17. And he was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him. There's a rich young ruler that comes up to him. How do we know he's rich? Well, it says that he had much possessions in Mark. In, Mark, in Matthew 18, it said he was young. In, in Luke, 8, uh, Luke 18, I think it was Matthew 19. In Luke 18, it says that he was a ruler. That means that he was probably a ruler of a synagogue. He was a religious ruler. And there was a sense of urgency. He came running and kneels at the feet of Jesus and to ask him this sincere question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He comes looking for assurance. And Jesus, how does he answer this question? He takes him to God's word. He takes him to God's word. He takes him to God's standard. Verse 19 is, is basically second half of the Ten Commandments. As Sister Tori read out of Exodus 20, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Talk about the Ten Commandments. The second half, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. All of them are word for word uh, uh, of the Ten Commandments, but do not defraud, that's not in there. Do not covet is the, is the, the command that's in the Ten Commandments. And I think that he's talking, referring to do not coveting, because if you covet other people's things, you'll defraud them of their things. In other words, the Lord is taking them to the standard of God and, and, and talking about the Ten Commandments. And, 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 and I can see, I can almost imagine this rich young ruler going through this. Yes, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, what else, what else? Is that it, God? Yes, I've done these things already. Verse 20 says that, since I, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. You may be thinking to yourself like, is he lying right there? Is he breaking one of the commandments right there, right? I think there's a level of sincerity here. I mean, Paul calls himself blameless according to the law in Philippians 3, 6. So some religious people were so strict at keeping the laws externally that perhaps he might have even, even been able to honor his father and mother somehow. All right? Right then, there, this man, can you imagine it right now, what's going on in his heart? He might have been feeling pretty good about himself right there. Man, the good teacher only went to the basic things. That was easy. Of course I keep all those laws. He didn't go to the obscure ones, what the rabbis have made even more harder and, and, and place more greater demands. This isn't childlike faith. This is not an example of dependent childlike faith. This is what you call merit-based faith. I mean, think about it. The operative word is I, verse 17. What shall I do? 
to inherit uh, the kingdom of God? That's like an oxymoron. What shall I do to inherit? Inheritance are given. What shall I do? Verse uh, 20, I have kept all these things. I mean, we easily, any of us, whether it's the rich young ruler or any of us who have grown up in the church can have an overly inflated view of ourselves because we base our value or our merit on man's standards. You could always find someone who's a little bit far off than you. You could always find someone who's a little less obedient than us. But what does God's standard say? He was, I believe he was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. You know, it's more than he's sincere. You have to be sincerely right, right? I mean, he was sincerely wrong. So it's interesting right here. Look at the heart of God here now. Let's look at the heart of God. In this moment, Jesus has an op- choice. Does he just let him go his way? What would you do? Would you, just, would you correct them or would you just, just kind of maintain peace? Because we see how the, the next verse is going. Obviously, Jesus doesn't just let it go. Well, let's see, let's see what happens. Let's see what's most loving here. Verse 21, and looking at him, Jesus loved him, loved him. Looking at him, this word looking at is an intense gaze. Like you're intently looking at somebody in the eyes. And since he's divine, out of his divine nature, he's like, I could see him just looking into his soul, into his heart. And as he's looking at him, he's examining what is behind all of this obedience What does the Bible say? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the what? The heart. The heart. Everyone can see he's a religious man, but what's going on underneath all that? Jesus is God. Jesus in his divine nature sees everything. And he administers a spiritual test here, a spiritual EKG on his spiritual heart, and he sees a problem. And what is that problem that he sees? Although it's money here or, or, or possessions, he sees a love problem. He sees a love problem. In verse 21, what does he prescribe? One thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. If you want to be, go to heaven, sell all that you have and give to the poor. What? What? Is Jesus commanding us to live in a vow of poverty? No, he's not doing that. There are wealthy Christians. There are wealthy, godly saints in the Old Testament. But Jesus is diagnosing a specific problem for this rich young ruler. However, we do live perhaps in the wealthiest country on the planet. And for now, we're a bit of a middle to upper class, generally, church membership here. So, Pretty much, I'm looking around, uh, maybe a, apart from a few exceptions, we are wealthy compared to everyone in the planet. So that's why I, teaching on, on money and possessions is such an such a intense topic. I mean, Jesus Christ does not hold back any punches as a preacher. A couple of weeks ago, he preached on hell. A couple of weeks ago, he preached on divorce and marriage. Now, this week, he's preaching on wealth. 
basically a diagnosis that this man loves his stuff, his possessions, more than God. This is the driving force in his life. It's just like in Mark 9, 43, when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. In other words, he's saying, get rid of that one thing that's causing you to love me with all your heart, and you will have the kingdom of heaven. There's the answer. Here are the keys to heaven. He answered the rich young ruler's question. Verse 22, this is his sad response. But looking, but at these words, he was saddened. Saddened, I mean, he was depressed. This is, is, is this hard. This is more than a little sadness. This is, he, he was broken, he was distraught. His, I could see his eyes sinking in and darkening as he walked away. And he went away grieving. Why? For he was one who owned much property. For he was one who owned much property. Possession of money is not the issue for this man. The problems that this money possessed him, this, the money owned him. It ruled his life, and it was a source of his motivation. Remember, money is not evil, it's neutral. It could be a blessing in a lot of ways, but the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money starts you in the wrong direction. See, I believe that the Lord is diagnosing his heart motivation for obedience. In my mind, there is no doubt that this man was a devout and pious-looking man. But in his heart, he was motivated to protect his money. Because as a ruler, you have an opportunity to earn money. You have an ability to gain wealth. But if you're not keeping the commandments... You're going to get fired as a ruler and you're going to lose that income ability. What is the heart-driving motivation that we have as we would serve, as we do anything? This man was protecting his brand, in other words. And that's the motivation. And salvation requires a supreme devotion to God. Not a perfect devotion, but a supreme devotion. What are you talking about, pastor? Perfect means I love God Perfectly, None of us could say that. None of us here could say that. Supremely simply means he's number one in my life. Supreme. Doesn't mean it's a supreme, perfect love, but he is number one, the undisputed love of my life. He is the greatest treasure of my life. That's what it means to have Christ as your supreme love. And so that everything that you do, you're motivated to love God. Even good things like serving and obedience to the laws and Ten Commandments and giving, whatever, maybe raising your children, uh, working at the office, it's because you love God, you're giving it all you got. Because you could give it all you got at work because you love money and you, want, you love uh, greater promotion. That could happen. Man looks at the outward appearance, so it's, it's important, but God looks at the heart. Just like a healthy marriage, God does not allow you to have a mistress, right? I mean, think about that. It makes common sense in a human perspective, and we understand how painful that could be. So if you've been through something like that, lean into the Lord. I, I, I can't even imagine how painful that must be, but think about how God feels when we are not faithful to him. 
Let's turn to Exodus 20. Um, give your Bibles, turn to the left. Exodus 20, verse 3 and 5. Exodus 20, verse 3 and 5. Sister Tori read this earlier, and uh, this is important. I, I, Jesus starts with the second half of the Ten Commandments. The last six of the commandments deal with our horizontal relationships, how we love one another, how we love others. The first four deal with our love for God. And I just want to take time to read this so that you, you understand this is on the heart of God. Exodus 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. I need to be number one. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, Yahweh, or the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Am a jealous God. You see, the Lord requires a supreme love for him. Deuteronomy 6 is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. We know this one. Luke 16, 13 says you cannot serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. Matthew 10, 37 says this. This one is very challenging, but the Lord does not mince any words. He says he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see this? We're not talking about sinful, evil things now. We're talking about family right here. This is really close. You cannot love your grandchildren more than God. That's what the Bible is saying. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world supremely, the love of the Father is not in him. That's why in 1 John 5.21 John ends his letter with little children. See this? He must have remembered this message from the Lord. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from idols because these are so dangerous. It could keep you or me from the kingdom of God. Now, let's apply this to ourselves. We, we examine, we thoroughly examine the rich young ruler. Now, let's put, apply this to our hearts now. As Jesus is gazing into your heart right now, from heaven above, okay, as he's looking into your heart right now, what one thing do you lack? What would he say to you? And if you're a genuine believer, what one thing is kind of comp uh, competing with him that keeps you from growing in your love for Christ? If you're not a saved person, what one thing clearly is the undisputed love of your life? What will keep you out of heaven? Is it your money, like the rich young ruler? Is it your career? Is that where you find your esteem and the, my importance? Is it status that's important to you, how you're looked at by people? Family, maybe? Reputation, your education, sports even? I can relate to a lot of these things. Let's take an idle test together, all right? I'm going to give you two tests from uh, Mark 10 here. Let's take an, uh, the idol test together. Let's examine our hearts right now before God and ask God, based on these two tests, if I have an idol in my life. Number one, in verse 22, it says this. He was saddened 
deeply and he was grieving. Number one, what controls your emotions? When, when something is challenged in your life, good or bad, what emotions come up? Is it anger? Is it sadness, great depression? Do you, do you withdraw? What things are going on in your heart? Emotions are connected to your idols. We will protect our idols because they're important to us. Number two, let's look at verse 22 again. Jesus said to say, come and follow me, but it says he went away grieving for he owned much property. Test number two, test number one, what controls your emotions? Test number two, what do you obey or who do you obey? Do you obey God? Or do you obey something else? Do you fudge on your integrity to secure more money or greater uh, status? That could be a sign that you're obeying money or your job more than God. Two tests, and, and, and perhaps the Lord is burning something in your heart right now, or maybe later. Think about these things tonight, tomorrow, throughout your life. What controls me to, to, in my emotions? Like there's something underneath that, and then what do I obey the most, right? And I hope you say, know that I'm telling you this out of love because I'm t- putting myself to these tests too. How do you think I felt reading and meditating on these portions of Scripture all week long? I mean, there's a lot that, that was coming up as well. Confess these things to another person. Confess these things to another person. Confess them to God ultimately, though. All right, let's finish up here with a third and final point. Salvation requires divine grace. Divine grace. It requires divine grace. Verse 23, turn with me to verse 23 in Mark 10. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples said, what? What do you mean? This is a shocking statement to them. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Once again, more cultural context may help. In that day, maybe some people even today think this, those who were rich were blessed by God. It's as if the hand of God from heaven was touching this person, therefore affirming their place in the kingdom of God. So in the disciples' mind, what do you mean? This guy's got it all. He's the perfect candidate to go to heaven. Surely, God, what are you talking about? If he can't get in, how can we get in? We're a bunch of poor fishermen. Well, Jesus goes on to say it two more times. Two more times. Verse 24, children how hard it is into the kingdom of God. And then puts the lock on the door when he says it makes it completely impossible, not just hard, but it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He makes it impossible. Okay, he, go, he says it's hard, it's really hard to. Now, you know what? Let me be perfectly clear. It's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, 
If you think about the higher paying job, <laughs> maybe you're thinking twice, right? What is the benefit of earning more? I mean, Jesus talked about money more than faith and prayer two times compared to faith and prayer. Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Why is it hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom? Well, Revelation 3.17, John writes about the, uh, Jesus' word towards a lukewarm, loud, deceiving church who are neither hot nor cold, where Jesus said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You're not in the kingdom, and this is the issue because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked, Revelation 3.17. The issue is a self-sufficiency, not childlike faith, not dependent like a child. It goes back to our first point. Verse 26, then who can be saved? I mean, I can only imagine the, the, the despair on the disciples' hearts and minds, and then who can be saved? What is this all about then? Why are we even following you, Jesus? What is this about? And this is the whole key question here. Looking at them, this is the same word as he, that describes how Jesus looked at the rich young ruler, gazing at the 12, in other words, preaching with his eyes, like, you need to listen up here. Listen to these words. The eyes speak. With people, it is impossible. In other words, you're right. You, it's impossible to heaven on your own. On your own. Even the largest animal in Palestine is not able to go through a small little needle hole. Okay, the eye of the needle is literally the, a needle hole. Yes, that's impossible. On your own, it is completely impossible to get into the kingdom of God. But not with God. But not with God. Thank God for the butts in the Bibles. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Divine grace is what Jesus is talking about. You need to experience the divine grace of God. Salvation is 100% from God. We have nothing to bring to the table. So right now, if you're thinking that you are a good candidate for heaven because of maybe how you think, how generous you are, the type of family you have, the knowledge of the Bible that you have, the church attendance, well, you need to rethink that again because he's saying it's impossible for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you bring any merit of your own with God, it nulls and voids your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. If that's what you're thinking, like it's Jesus plus me, I get into heaven. John 3 says this, you need to be born again spiritually. You need to be born from heaven above so that we could become like children. How do we have childlike faith? Because we're reborn again. We're babies again. And go, yes. I need you, God. We need to be given a brand new nature, a new heart with new affections and a new love that dominates us. Old things have passed away. New things have come, the Bible says. Is that you? Do you have eternal life? Do you have eternal life? Ephesians 2.5 says, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins, spiritually dead, dead man can do nothing, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace, unmerited favor, without any of our merit, God gave us grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, the childlike faith. We are born again, and then now we have childlike dependent faith. We believe. I'm gonna finish up with this. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. There's only, just like there's only two kingdoms in the world or, or, or in existence, there's only two religions in the world. Let me, let me detail both of them for you right now. The religion of human effort. Imagine a scene where you're drowning in an ocean, an ocean of your own sin. And Buddha comes out to you our Buddhist friends will say this. Buddha comes out to you and teaches you how to swim to shore. Now, granted, you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean here, and you're right in the middle, and, and Buddha tells you how to swim and find the right currents to get to shore. That's the human, that's the religion of human effort. I'll tell you how to live a good life, follow these things well enough, and you'll make it. Whether it's Buddhism or Muslim or uh, being a Muslim or any of the other faith, think about how works are part of that how, and how well you have to maintain these things. The religion of human effort. And God says it is impossible to get to heaven. It's impossible to swim your way to heaven on your own. Now the religion of divine grace, the true one and only true religion. Imagine you're, you're sinking and, and drowning in the ocean of sin. Buddha doesn't come. Jesus shows up. He doesn't just give you a manual saying, hey, follow these Ten Commandments and you'll be fine. What Jesus does is this. He reaches and pulls you out of the ocean and takes you into heaven. That's the religion of divine grace where God comes and reaches down and rescues a sinner. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're moral or immoral, whether you are self-righteous or stiff-necked, God came into the world, Christ came into the world to save sinners. If the story ended this way for the rich young ruler, this would be the most tragic story of all. It's like he's right on the edge and then just walks away, right on the edge of walking through the kingdom of heaven, through the narrow way, through the narrow gate. Walk, come into my presence, come into my pleasure. Instead, if he turned around and took the broad road and he took the broad gate where many are on into destruction, this would be the most tragic thing. Hopefully he came to his senses. Hopefully the spirit of God fell upon him. He came to his senses and came and followed Jesus Christ. How will the story end for you? How will the story end for you? Are you saddened and grieved and you go, man, that was a good sermon. I was really convicting. And you leave today doing what you normally have done. You're the rich young ruler then. Tragedy. 
The Bible says that worldly sorrow leads to death. You could feel bad, but that's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow says that it leads to repentance where you do what Jesus says. Come, turn away from your idol. It could be money or something else, and come follow me. That's repentance. And if that type of sorrow is taking place in your heart right now, praise God. God is coming after you right now. Matter of fact, he's coming after you right now. And the spirit of God is giving you rebirth and you start, to, you came to your senses and you see the light. I pray that that is your story. And churchmen, brothers and sisters, perhaps God pre- revealing, is revealing a, a certain type of idol in your heart. Godly sorrow says it leads to repentance. So if you're redeemed, you're saved. You're a saved man or woman. So I'm not saying you have to, you're in and out of the kingdom, but you want to elevate in your love for Christ? Keep repenting. Keep re- it's, it's a lifelong process. Keep repenting with godly sorrow and see what God does to elevate your love for him. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this message on divine grace. It's up to you anyway. It's always been about you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. Father, we know that you require supreme devotion to you, and you call us to tear down those idols. I pray, Lord, that we would not be like the rich young ruler walking away sad, but we will be like children walking into the arms of the Father who loves us so much. And will you just hold us and bless us, Lord? I pray, Father, for any brothers or sisters here who do not know that you're that gracious that they will know this. You're the loving Father who takes us into your arms. You're the loving Father who loves us deeply. Father, I pray for those who are guests and who maybe even been here for many years and who aren't Christians. I pray, Lord, that their faith will turn into dependent, childlike faith and they will turn to you as Lord and Savior and they will enter into the kingdom of God with great joy and celebration. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.